0: Well, good morning, Fellowship Bible. Oh, two of you. Good morning. Thank you, Matt Visaki. Well, uh, let me introduce myself. Uh, I know for some of you, you're like, who's that guy? And it might be because of my COVID haircut or because uh, I'm not up front very often. But let me introduce myself. My name is Mike Uh, I'm one of the elders that serves here at Fellowship Bible, and I'm honored to be with you this morning. Um, Pastor Lloyd and Pastor Rob are enjoying, I believe it's a marriage retreat this weekend with some of the people on our leadership team. So they're being invested into and poured into and enjoying a rare weekend off of preaching. So I'm honored to be opening up God's, God's Word with you this morning. Um, We are going to pick up back where we left off in Matthew chapter 5. If you've been here for the last uh, few weeks, you've realized we actually took a bit of an intentional hiatus or a diversion from the Sermon on the Mount. It was intentional and strategic around the time of the election to do a three-week series on the kingdom of God to remind us God's in control. He's got this. In fact, I'm sure for many of you throughout much of 2020, you've had to remind yourself, okay, God's got this, right? God's got this. Yes, he is in control. And we're going to pick back up in our text in Matthew chapter 5. About a month ago, Rob Sweet uh, uh, got us to the point of Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. And uh, just a quick recap uh, to kind of bring to top of mind where we finished off last time. Uh, 38 to 42 was the portion of Matthew 5 where Rob was teaching about retaliation or non-retaliation. Right? Jesus says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your left cheek also. If anyone sues you and takes your tunic, offer to them your cloak also. If any, anyone asks you to go with them a mile, go with them too, and so forth. Um, the, the chapter heading in my Bible, I'm not sure how it reads in yours, but just above verse 38, my chapter uh, title says retaliation, right? or as we look at the application, the non-retaliation that Jesus is calling us to. But it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more significant than that. Um, And I'm going to tell you, if if you look at your Bible in Matthew 5, we're going to go from 38 to 42, which is where Rob was, and I'm going to pick up and go from 43 to 48. That 10 verses in Matthew 5 is literally revolutionary moral teaching. It is the most profound moral teaching up until this time that has ever been put forth. And I don't say that for shock value. I think I can actually defend that claim. When I was in seminary, I did a master's degree at Biola University in apologetics. And one of the, one of the authors that we read was C.S. Lewis. I've, I've read much of this guy's writings. In his book, The Abolition of Man, he puts forth a condensed summary of the ethical teachings from various civilizations over the ages, looking at different religions, different geographical places, and looking at what do these people teach is right. What do these civilizations civilizations teach that is wrong? And he literally compiled them so we could have a bit of a, a contrast versus what is taught by Jesus. Now, Lewis is the right guy to do this, just so you know, because not only is he a profound scholar who read widely, he also had a photographic memory. So he was able to connect the dots better than most of us could. When you read this uh, summary of moral teaching over the ages and over many civilizations, Lewis is comparing the moral and ethical lightings from the ancient Egyptians to the Old Norse, uh, to Hindu, Babylonian, Roman, Greek, Chinese, Jewish. And what he finds, what we find when we survey the whole corpus of ethical teaching, is that there's a lot of commonality. There's a lot of similarities between this culture and that culture, even though they're separated by thousands of miles and perhaps thousands of years, right? But but what they say is the right behavior to pursue has a lot in common. In fact, it's surprisingly similar from civilization to civilization. What you find in this moral teaching throughout the history of the world are common threads like prohibition against murder. Bless you. Uh, Prohibition against things like adultery uh, and theft, dishonesty, right? Uh, You'll also find admonitions to promote caring for those in need uh, and then also uh, conducting yourself honestly in all your dealings and so forth. It's fascinating when you read this to see the utter consistency between all the moral teachings throughout the history of the world. What you won't find in any of this summary of ethical teachings is what's in our Bible that we're gonna look at this morning. Verses 38 to 48 of Matthew 5. In it, Jesus is gonna break through the common conventions of morality. And he's gonna put forth literally the most radical love ethic that has ever been seen or heard before. Turn your other cheek to your enemy when they strike you. Offer them your cloak when they sue you for your tunic. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Guys, you don't find this teaching literally anywhere else. When Jesus taught this, he must have literally startled his audience because he was teaching something that had never before been heard and he said it with clearness and with force. So let's get into the text this morning. I want to dive into this and I want to see if we can finish off the the journey that that Jesus started um, in verse 38 a few weeks ago. I'm gonna take you through sort of five summary statements that I believe we see in these verses. And the first one we're gonna look at is love your enemies. This is the first summary statement, love your enemies. Starting in verse 43, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Now, loving your neighbor, this wasn't a new concept. For the people of Israel. Uh, You find that even the people that Jesus bumped into during his ministry time would be able to quote this to him. It was not uncommon. We see in the Gospels that Jesus would ask someone, Hey, what's, what's the greatest commandment of God? And they'd say, Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He says, Great. What's the second most significant commandment of God? Love your neighbor as yourself right that was part of the vernacular that was part of the commoner's understanding of the law and the teachings of god right so that this was not a stretch to love your neighbor right but what had crept into the law of israel what had crept into the teaching through the scribes and the pharisees who somewhat corrupted the understanding was that they had developed an exceedingly narrow understanding of who their neighbor was in Luke chapter 10, uh, starting around verse 25, you don't need to flip there, I just give it to you as a reference, uh, a lawyer literally asks Jesus, okay, who is my neighbor? Right? To, to literally ask Jesus to define, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to show love towards? And when asked that question, Jesus responds by launching into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? And if you've been in church any length of time, you're probably familiar with the story. Right? A man from Jerusalem is going down to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers who beat him, steal his belongings, and leave him for dead. And In the story, a priest walks by and doesn't help the man. A Levite walks by the man, the bloodhood of the priest, like the bloodline of the priest, the Levite walks by, doesn't help this man. Who does help him? A man from Samaria, despised Samaria, stops, puts the man on his donkey, Takes him to an inn where he pays for his shelter, he prays for his pays for his medical care, pays for his food, and then the Samaritan says, If there's anything else I owe you, let me know, and I'll come back and settle the debt. At the end of the story, what was Jesus' point? He said, Who is the who's the person who proved to be a neighbor to this man? It was the Samaritan, right? So what was Jesus' point? Our neighbor is not just someone of our own race. Our neighbor is not just someone of our same socioeconomic standing. Our neighbor is not even someone of our same religion. Our neighbor may not, in fact, be anyone who's connected to us. What constitutes them or qualifies them as our neighbor is simply that he or she is another human being in need. And what's our duty to our neighbor? Whether they be our friend or our foe, we're to love them. Now, this was a radical turn, right? Jesus is bringing correction into this because, as I said, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they started adding to God's word in the temple, in the synagogue. When they were teaching the people, they modified it ever so slightly, similar to how the serpent in the Garden of Eden ever so slightly modified the message of God to Eve. And Jesus... We see here, as in several places in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to bring his correction to this false understanding. He's going to tell us we are not to hate our enemies. And I love how Jesus does this. Please, please look at his methodology in terms of how he approaches this. Jesus is going to set his divine standard against the perverted standards of the Jewish tradition, and he's going to do so by bringing an emphatic I. You have heard it said, you're to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say, You are to love your enemies. It's worth noting, if he was only trying to bring corrective information, the I wasn't necessary. He's making not only a grammatical statement here, he's making a theological statement here. He's placing what he says above the perverted tradition, right, of the Jewish teachers, and he's placing his own word on par with Scripture. Jesus is saying, Your great rabbis and scholars have taught you to love only those of your own kind, your own preference, and then to hate your enemies. But by my authority, I declare that they are false teachers that have perverted God's word. The divine truth is my truth. You shall love your enemies. And then he goes on. The next statement that he says is, We are to pray for our persecutors. Verse 44b. Now one commentator as I was getting ready for this for this morning has said if you look at verse 38 to 48 you almost see a progression. They're like small steps forward in the text. One by one by one. It starts with don't take any evil initiative. It goes on to say don't avenge another's evil. And then on to say don't resist the evildoer. And then offer the evildoer more than he demands. And then don't hate the evildoer but Love the evildoer. And then the last step forward is this: pray for the evildoer. Pray to God on behalf of the one who is your enemy. Now, you might be thinking, really? Like that's the summit of this peak, praying for your enemy? Mike, I pray for my enemies all the time. Jesus, take out my foes. Like, like do it, do it in a spectacular fashion, right? Off them. Take them down. Do it creatively. Do it slowly. Do it painfully. right? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not telling us to pray for our foes or our enemies' demise. He's telling us to pray for their benefit. And that's the part here that's revolutionary, perhaps for some of us. Now, I don't know your story. I don't know who comes to mind when you think about the idea that we are to pray for our enemy, that we're to love our enemy, just indulge me in this exercise for a second. Who comes to your mind's eye? Whose face do you see when the word enemy is seen in the text this morning? Is there a particular person that you can think of immediately when the word enemy shows up? I was talking to my daughter, the, t- Satan? Yep. I was talking to my daughter on the way to the church this morning and she said, what are we, what are we talking about today? And I said, uh, loving and praying for your enemies. And she said something like, well, Who's your enemy? And I said, you know what, I struggle with that. I honestly don't know who my enemy is. And maybe you're like me, I'm like, this is Brentwood. This is like Mayberry. I don't feel like I've got enemies here. Not in the context, perhaps, in which this was given. Um, I, I was in business for a lot of years, I had competitors, they were actively working against me, I was actively working against them, but I never thought of them as my enemy. Right? I don't really feel like I've got an enemy that I, in the sense of this understanding. But that might not be true for you this morning. When you see the word enemy in the Bible, I bet there's some of you in the room, you see a very clear face in your mind's eye. There's someone who comes to the forefront of your imagination in about a split second. And for some of you, it might be the husband that divorced you or the wife who divorced you. For some of you, it might be the family member who harmed you. I know that was my mom's story. Some of you might see uh, a prior or a current employer or perhaps a former business partner that violated the relationship. Some of you might see the face of one that you once called a close friend, but there was a fracture in the relationship. And in almost all those situations, when we've been wronged, when we've been harmed, I think we need to acknowledge and confront the reality that we kind of want them to get theirs don't we? There's part of the way that we're wired that really desires justice. We really do. And when someone has hurt us, when someone has harmed us, we want those wrongs to be made right. We want those scales to be balanced. We all, if we're being honest, kind of like the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When we've been wronged, we want to see the wrongs made right. But guys, Jesus Example to us is the one we have to look to and the one that we have to follow as believers. It was Jesus himself that literally prayed for his tormentors while the iron spikes were being driven into his hands and into his feet. In fact, the imperfect verb tense used in that verse suggests that Jesus kept praying. He kept repeating over and over, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And church, if the cruel torture of crucifixion couldn't silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, then what pain, what injustice that you've experienced could justify the silencing of your prayers for your enemy? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the reformer who lived during the Third Reich era in World War II, he said of this verse, he said, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy we stand by his side and we plead for him to God. We are to bless those who curse us. If your enemy calls down disaster and catastrophe upon your head, expressing in words their wish for your downfall, then we must retaliate by calling down heaven's blessings upon them, declaring in our words that we wish nothing but their good. This is the standard Jesus is calling us to third summary verse that I want to move on to is in verse 45 it says the, the, the concept or the idea is that we are to manifest our sonship right why do we pray for those who persecute us so that we may be sons of our father who is in heaven guys we imitate the character of God when we don't return evil for evil but instead return good for evil we pray for our enemies and long for their benefit because that's how God treated us when we were separated from God, when we were rebelling against him, it was then that Christ laid down his life for us. Prior to the Sermon on the Mount, we did a series in Colossians. We spent a lot of weeks there, actually a number of months in Colossians. Colossians one twenty one says that when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Church, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And when you look in the New Testament, some of you are great at studying your Bible. I want to give you a challenge this morning. If you want to go deep in the word, one of the best things you can do is to do word studies in your Bible. To look at patterns that emerge when you see words that appear at the same time. Right? If you do a study in the New Testament on the words, the love of God or God's love, What's fascinating to me is that you almost always find it correlated to another concept. The death of his son on the cross. Why is that? Because the love of God is agape, love, right? Some of you might know in Greek there's actually four different words used for love. In English we have one, love. In the Greek they had four different words for love. The first one was um, storge, which is the love between family members. The second one is philo, or philia, which is brotherly love, or the love between friends. The third word is eros, which is romantic love. The fourth one is agape. It is the highest ascent of love. It is selfless, self-serving love. Now, it is completely devoid of one's own agenda. Agape love is unconditional and seeks its fulfillment only in the benefit of its recipient. And when we find the term God's love in the New Testament, it's consistently connected to the love of God as expressed by his Son dying on the cross for you and for me. Let me give you a couple examples. Right? For almost all of us, if you're a Christian and you start memorizing Scripture, one of the first verses you memorize is John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Romans 5.8. God showed his great love for us in this while we were yet sinners Christ died for us galatians 2:20 i have been crucified with christ and i no longer live but christ lives in me the life i live in the body i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me first john 4:10 this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son As an atoning sacrifice for us. Every time, almost without exception in the New Testament, and you see a reference to God's love, it's piggybacked or connected to the expression of that love by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Again, that's the gospel. If you're a Christian, that's your story and that's my story. God didn't give us what we actually deserved. Right? He didn't give us what was coming to us. He actually gave us what we didn't deserve. He showered upon us grace, which is unmerited favor. And so in the same spirit, we are to mirror God's character and offer unmerited favor to those who have wronged us. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Now the second half of verse 45 is kind of fun. It says, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain to the just and to the unjust. Uh, in, in theology, we call that concept common grace. It's the reality that God gives blessings um, abundantly whether you return the love of God to him or not. If you love God or if you hate God, if you're an atheist and you're a farmer and you're right next door to a Christian who's a farmer, the rain clouds don't start and stop right on the border. God sends his rain on all. He sends his sun on all. He sends health to all of us. We call that common grace. It's not exclusive. These blessings of God are not exclusive to simply those who have received him and bowed their knee to him as Lord and as God. Verse 45, the concept of common grace, it reminded me of uh, an experience I had when I was at seminary. So if you'll indulge me to take a two-minute rabbit trail, um, this came to me as soon as I saw this verse. And I just want to share it with you because it was profound for me in the time. Um, I studied apologetics at seminary, which was, uh, it's the defense of the Christian faith. Right? Apologetics is when you kind of are able to articulate and give reason for, and justification for, your belief in what you hold to be true. And one of the things we would often see in apologetics is you'll often see a debate where a Christian would stand at one podium and give his reasons for his world beliefs in front of an audience like this. And over at the other podium, there'd be someone else who holds a completely different belief. Sometimes they're Muslim, sometimes they're atheist. And they'd be kind of squaring off against each other, trying to explain and justify their beliefs. Also, at the same time, kind of disassembling the other person's beliefs. But all in an effort to have the audience determine which one's right. Well, I read of, uh, when I was in, uh, at Biola University, I read a transcript of a debate that happened a long time ago between two very intriguing people. One was a man named G.K. Chesterton, who was an author and a newspaper columnist, and he was debating against a guy named George Bernard Shaw. Now, some of you young folks in the room might say, wait a minute, I know that name. If you did eighth grade English, you may have read the play Pygmalion, also known as My Fair Lady. That was written by George Bernard Shaw. He was a very outspoken and very articulate atheist. And Chesterton was a very, very witty and very insightful Christian. And they debated each other literally dozens of times over their lifetime. And they, the cool thing is they would formed a really cool friendship from this as well. In one of these debates, uh, Bernard Shaw is challenging Chesterton. And he says, in your Christian worldview, you live in a world where God created the universe and governs the universe, and he's all-powerful and all-good. Why then, Mr. Chesterton, is there so much evil and suffering in the world? It's a good question. And Chesterton, about to respond to Shaw, says, You know what, I'll answer that question for you, Mr. Shaw. But if I could kindly ask you to do one thing for me first. He said, You live in a world, as an atheist, where God does not exist, and there's not an all-powerful, all-loving goodness that governs the world. He says, Can you please explain to me why, in your worldview, you experience so much unnecessary goodness? And he gave some examples. He said, why is sex pleasurable? He said, some of the lower animals simply split in half to reproduce. He said, why do we see in color? Not necessary for survival. Many dogs and other lower animals see in black and white only. Kind of complicates vision to see in color, but we get to see in color. Why do we get to taste our food and receive enjoyment from the taste of our food? It's not necessary for transfer of nutrients. Why? And he gave multiple examples. He says, if I need to give an account for why there's suffering in a world where God is running the universe, then how do you account for all of the unexplained goodness that you experience? Christians all the time will hear of the problem of evil and suffering, but to the atheist, there's the problem of goodness. I thought that was a fascinating twist on the debate. Guys, love, God's love is visible to all. It's not a only visible to those who love him. It's also visible to those who oppose him and even those who hate him. Let's keep going. Fourth statement I wanna make is that our charge from our text this morning is to exceed our fellow man. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? guys, Jesus is saying fallen man is not incapable of loving expressions of love are common, and they're the regular experience of those men and women who are outside of Christ Jesus is saying, even tax collectors love those who love them even the Gentiles love those who love them, I'll add to that even drug lords love those who love them, even Democrats love those who love them even Republicans love those who love them Jesus is saying if we only reciprocate love, then we're no better than swindlers and we're no better than pagans. Jesus is saying the bar for us as believers is higher. Look at verse 47. If you are a a student of your Bible, if you've got a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, I want you to pull it out. I want you to circle one word in verse 47, and that's the word more. What more are you doing than others? church, it's not enough for Christian behavior to resemble that of non-Christians. Jesus expects more of us. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, he says that we are the light of the world. And when we don't live differently than non-Christians, our light is hidden under a basket. Jesus is calling us to shine brightly, reflecting his life in us, so that our lives might give light to the whole house that metaphor is to our culture, to our society. Our light is to shine so that we can give light to our surroundings. In church we shine brightest for Christ when we love those who have caused us harm. If you return good with evil, that's diabolical. If you return good with good, that's human. But if you return evil with good, that's divine. And that's distinctive, and that turns heads. And that's why all of us, if you were here three weeks ago or four weeks ago, when Rob taught on this, at the very end of his sermon, he played a three-minute video clip from the movie Les Mis. And you saw the story of a man named Jean Valjean who robbed the priest who was showing him kindness. Valjean had been in prison for 19 years, and a priest showed him kindness, let him stay at his house for a night, and Valjean robbed him, took his silver, and went running. And then when the police caught Valjean and brought him back to this priest's house and said, hey, priest, this man Valjean says you gave him the silver. And the priest said, he did. It's true. And he said, Jean Valjean, I'm very angry at you. Why didn't you take the candlesticks as well? And he said, Jean Valjean, you were to use this silver to become a new man. He dismissed the police officers, pulled back Valjean's hood, and says, I ransom you from hatred and from anger, and I release you to God. Use this silver to become a new man. I don't know about you, but that moves me in a very deep place when I see that. The application of this is an absolute apex of an expression of our life changed by Christ. And it is that way to the world. When we show that kind of love to people that have wronged us and harmed us, it's an absolute game changer to them as well. Father John's like, why are you doing this? What's going on? It caused him to turn to the faith. My friends, one of my professors in seminary said there's five gospels. They weren't heretical. He said there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And he said... People need to find their way to God. How do they get to God? One way, through Jesus. How do they get to Jesus? Two ways. Either through the written word, if they happen to pick up a book and thumb through it, and the other way they'll hear about Jesus is through seeing a life changed. That's you and that's me. Friends, we have a responsibility to shine brightly for Christ. Because for some people, in our sphere of influence, they will never walk through that door. They'll never walk through the door of a church. The Christ that they see in you might be the only Christ that they encounter during their lifetime. And that's a responsibility that all of us need to carry. Last summary statement I want to look at in our text this morning is verse 48. Be like your heavenly father. Let me read this to you. Verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, church, I want to be clear. I've seen this verse used before in a standalone fashion to try to make a point that Jesus is not trying to make here. So let me clarify where Jesus is going with this because this is ripe for misunderstanding. If we interpret this verse standalone by itself, absent from the context in which it appears, so outside of the paragraph, outside of the sermon, you can misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Some holiness teachers have used this verse to try to build a case that Christians can literally attain a state of sinless perfection in this life. Right? People like John Wesley, for example, were proponents that Christians could literally attain perfection in their time on earth. I disagree with that ardently. I don't think we can, and I don't think Jesus thinks we can either. Let me explain why I say that. The words of Jesus can't be pressed into meaning that we can attain perfection on this earth without causing discord in the sermon. If we go back just a little bit in Matthew 5, Jesus in the Beatitudes indicated that it was a hunger for righteousness and a thirst after righteousness that was the mark of a disciple. Well, you don't hunger for something if you have it. You don't thirst for something if you have it, Right? So it's the longing for that indicates the disciple. In the next chapter, in chapter six, Jesus is gonna teach us how to pray. And part of that prayer is, Lord, forgive us our debts. Well, you don't need to ask forgiveness if you haven't done something wrong, if you haven't engaged in sinful behavior. So Jesus is acknowledging, we're gonna sin. These are clear indicators that Jesus does not expect his followers to be morally perfect in this life. So it begs the question, what does this verse mean? Well, the context shows that the perfection that he relates to, that he means, is the expression of perfect love. We are to embrace and to reflect the perfect love of God, which is shown even to those who don't return it to us and perhaps don't deserve it. That's the perfection that Jesus is referencing in verse 48. Now, I want to wrap up where we're going this morning with uh, an audio clip Back in 2005, I had the privilege of going to South Sudan, which at that time was still Sudan. They broke apart and became their own country after that first trip. And I had a chance to see a very unique people group and an incredible, uh, how do I phrase this? I found people who have incredible love and who have experienced incredible hardship in South Sudan. I've been back many times since 2005, since that first trip. And one of the things that I've learned in my journeys to South Sudan, we went there uh, a few times with trauma counselors to help people kind of work through some of the experiences they've had. This trauma counselor estimated that probably 80% or more of the entire population of South Sudan is clinically traumatized, like would be diagnosed as traumatized to one degree or another. Almost everyone in South Sudan has a story of seeing a family member get killed in front of them or um, someone be raped. Many of them have watched their houses burned to the ground. This is all partly because of a decades-long civil war, but it's also because of incredible tribal infighting that has this vicious cycle of revenge that's repeated over and over and over. My friends, I've seen and heard of unbelievable hardship in South Sudan One of the people I met when I went there on my first trip is one of our global partners, a guy named James Bach. who's one of my heroes in life. You see, in this context of all this hardship, James is a guy who was, as a boy of 13 years of age, was, his village was raided, it was attacked. James fled, he gets to a refugee camp. And then when he gets to the refugee camp, his one desire is to get a gun and go back to his people so he can avenge them. Right? So he can, he can fight back the people that hurt his village. But he becomes a Christian in this refugee camp. And when he returned to his village many years later, he doesn't return with a gun, he returns with a Bible. And James to this day, plants churches, he trains pastors, and one of the key elements of his ministry is he teaches workshops on forgiveness and reconciliation because his people so desperately need to bathe themselves in this verse to end the cycle of revenge. And I asked James, I did a Zoom call with him uh, last week, and I said, James, what's the hardest part of this to apply? Listen to his answer. I, uh, I know that you have lived so much of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in your own story. Um, you know Your own journey from how you became a believer, all the hardship as a lost boy, and then the desire to come back and avenge your people, and then how the Lord took away that desire and replaced it with love. Um, James, what's been the hardest part for you personally? Like when you think about Jesus teaching to love and to forgive your enemies, talk to me just in your own story. Where, where, and when has that been hardest for you personally to apply that?
1: Um, okay, the 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 hardest thing. Um, the what has been the uh, what has been the hard uh, for me is the fact that even when you forgive even when you say i am not going to revenge mm-hmm. you still remember that when uh, mm-hmm. like my friend whom uh, beat my head every time i see him i remember my scar the, the scar that he made in my head and that is the hardest thing you you are still reminded but because it is a decision that you have taken, I think the reconciliation is about decision, saying that I have forgotten my rights for me to revenge, my right for me to, uh, uh, to, 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 to return evil was evil. I have forgiven. That is a decision. But it doesn't remove the pain. It doesn't remove memory. You still remember what happened to you. And that is the hardest thing. Uh, Mike, uh, to be honest mm. to you, that is the hardest thing because you will still remember. It doesn't go away uh, when someone does to you bad. It doesn't go away, and it reminds you. But because you have decided uh, that I'm not going to revenge, you still go with it. Uh, you still. Uh, I, I wish there was. A, uh, I wish there is. A, there was a way when you say I have forgiven. Uh, I have forgiven Mike then it goes away. I don't remember anything like that, but it doesn't happen like that. You still remember. The pain can still be there. Uh, yeah, the memory is still remaining there. That's the hardest part when you uh, make psychic decisions.
0: It's a good word. Of all the examples and atrocities that I've heard James share, I thought it was almost funny that he shared the story of the man who bit his head <laughs> and left a scar. But the point is profound. When I see him, I remember my scar. Some of you may resonate with that. We still carry our scars with us on our journey. They're part of our story. We have physical and we have emotional wounds from the hardships we've endured. And some of these were inflicted upon us by our enemies. They serve as a constant reminder of what's happened to us in the past. We remember our scars. But church, I want to remind you of another set of scars. Some 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah foretold that one would come who would be pierced for our iniquities, who would be bruised for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels, when Jesus is resurrected, have you ever noticed that he still has his scars? It's almost an insignificant detail in the Gospels, but it's very intriguing. Because in the resurrected state, we're promised that we'll have renewed bodies. If you're deaf in this world, you'll be able to hear in the resurrected body. If you're blind on earth, you'll be able to see in your resurrected state. If you're hunched over or in a wheelchair, you'll be able to run. Why does Jesus still have his wounds? Have you ever thought about that? Guys, it's profound. Why are Jesus' hands and feet still pierced? Guys, Jesus' wounds are eternal because when he went to the cross, he was paying for sins past, present, and future so that you and I, some 2,000 years after he went to Calvary's cross, would still be recipients of the benefit of the price that he paid. Yeah, you might feel like you're being defined by your scars. Your enemy may want you to be defined by your scars, but Jesus wants to define you by his. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful for our time this morning. I thank you for your word that challenges us. Father, I'm mindful of the scars and of the wounds that we've all experienced that we take with us on our journey, the harm that's been done to us by those who are against us. Lord, we don't forget our scars. They're part of our story. But Lord, I pray you would help us to not be defined by them. Lord, would you help us to see to you to look to you with the agape love that you've shown us and may your scars define us in new and renewed ways so that we can love those who have wronged us and shine your light brightly before our fellow man. Amen.